in uh, preparation for the preaching of the word. If you are a small child, um, whether you're mature or not, you can head toward the back and go on downstairs to Children's Church, uh, and we will uh, pray and we will uh, we will hear the word this morning. Um, grab that stool. Let's uh, bow our heads. Heavenly Father, I, I pray that you be with me this morning. Help me to be faithful in, in preaching the word. Help me to um, kind of work through this uh, somewhat challenging passage uh, faithfully. Um, I pray that you would uh, give me grace and, and help me to speak wiser than, than I'm actually um, capable of, Lord. I pray that your spirit would move, that, that um, I would stay out of the way and allow you to kind of and to speak into folks' hearts. Um, I pray that your word would not come back empty, Lord, that it would be uh, planted as seeds in the lives of folks and that it would come back as a great harvest. In Christ's name, amen. Um, hanging up in my office, I have a sign, uh, or a, a plaque, I guess. It was gifted to me when I graduated from seminary. Uh, and, and it's got a scripture verse uh, that that is... It's, it's an inspirational verse at the face of it. It is, I know the plans that I have for you, plans to prosper you. John is smiling. Does everybody know this verse? Oh, wow. Like, it's, it's the, the inspirational verse. It's on cards, and especially now during graduation, you're going to see it on books and everything else. And it's this very, you know, you read it and you think, oh, God... God has this plan for me, this plan to prosper me, not to, not to hurt me. You know, God is on my team. We're, we're working together in this. And I love this verse because it is inspirational. But if you read it in the context, what the verse is about is God is about to send Babylon to destroy Israel, burn the country to the ground, and take everyone away as slaves into captivity for 70 years. And so in reality, what the passage is saying is, hey, life's about to get really hard. But, don't worry, I have a plan. Everybody with me? It is just one of those fun passages. When you read it, it sounds good. And when you look at the context, it gives it a whole lot more weight. There's a very different point of view, like in the bigger picture. And that bigger picture point of view is, I'm here to prosper you, but I'm going to crush you first. So as we dive into Peter, I, I'm picking this passage in this point of view, this particular verse, on, like intentionally, because Peter is about to close out his household code. Um, so far in the book, he opens and he addresses a handful of issues, and then he presents a household code, which was a very common thing in the ancient world, um, especially like anywhere that was influenced by Greek culture. Um, Hellenized is the word that refers to that. Like anybody who was Hellenized, they would have these household codes and you would memorize them and it would tell you what your job and your responsibilities are in your home. And they'd have them for, you know, husbands do this, wives do this, kids do this, etc., etc. And so Peter presents this household code, but he presents it with a different point of view. Um, he talks about how believers are supposed to respond to the to the rulers and the authorities, the government, and how they're to respond to, you know, um, slaves are supposed to respond to masters, and wives, how they respond to husbands, and husbands, how they respond to wives. And then he summarizes it right here. Um, this summary is influenced heavily 
by the fact that the, uh, the readers are mainly lower class. They're mainly poor. They're probably mostly women, right? They're probably uh, people who have received some backlash for their faith in Christ, which was a very common thing in the ancient world, like to become not, uh, not in harmony with the state religion or with the community religion, but to step away and become a Christian was a big deal, and it could cost you a great deal. And in this case, these folks had paid a price. And so this household code takes all of this into, into mind, and, and this is sort of the summary idea. And so as we dive into it, understand this is sort of the culmination of all of the stuff that came before it. And because it's a culmination, we're going to look at the previous verses a little bit, okay? Um, and we'll start off with verse 8, because we're going to pick up in 13 is where the text starts, where our preaching starts. But we're going to backtrack. This is last week we talked about this. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Um, and I accidentally double-stacked that. So he, he says, listen, have all of this stuff. Oh, there we go. Uh, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for those uh, bless for to this you were called that you might obtain a blessing um, for. And he's about to quote a psalm. But this preceding section, all of this stuff, he's kind of summarizing the behavioral stuff. He's saying, listen, be unified as the church, be sympathetic, show each other love, have a tender heart toward other believers, be humble when you deal with each other. And then when it deals with the outside world, don't repay evil for evil, don't like attack your neighbors, don't fight back, like be like Jesus and, and endure. And then he quotes this psalm, uh, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, mind you, this last little section here is significant because it says... If you are following God properly, if you are in harmony with his, with his expectations, with his teachings, God is on your side. Um, I had a good friend uh, in high school. His name was James. James was about 6'5 and weighed about 300 pounds. And we would go places. And I remember once we were, we were out and some guys tried to pick a fight with us. And, and that was the day that you were happy to have James along, Right? Because nobody's going to fight that guy. Like, not if they can help it. That's not a smart thing. James was big, and he was tough, and he took, I think, Taekwondo or something when he was a kid, and he could, James could fight. And, and he was a great guy to have along. And, and this is sort of the idea here. God is on your team. And if God is on your team, guess what? you gotta, you got a heavy with you all the time because God is big, and he's strong, and he's powerful, um, he's bigger than any boogeyman you might encounter in life. Thank you. Um, <laughs> there was like two people who got that joke. Um, <laughs> but but there are. I mean I mean he is bigger than any any monster any anything you're going to encounter. God is awesome, and he hears your prayers if you're righteous. That's a big deal. By the way, when he talks to husbands, Peter says, "Listen, treat your wife right. If you don't treat your wife right, the Lord doesn't hear your prayer. You know, so your prayers aren't hindered. As in do the right thing or God ain't listening when you start talking, right? And, and it's all sort of tied into this, like because Peter 
as he was raised Jewish, and he was, as a Jew, like, he knew the Psalms backward and forward, and they informed everything about, like, how he understood God. And this is a big chunk of that. Like, he says, hey, do right, be righteous, so that God is on your team. Now, our first verse here jumps off from there. He says, now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Meaning, if God is on your team... You, you got no problems because God is big and he's tough. The other idea here actually comes out of, and it's crazy because I was reading this morning and I came across this idea and I thought, oh, wow, that's pretty neat. Um, Book of Proverbs, um, this is an idea that's common throughout like the, uh, the ancient Jewish teachings. We see um, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes his enemies to be at peace with him. Meaning, if I live right, you know, folks are going to make peace with me. You know, if I bless those who curse me, it's really hard to keep cursing the guy who's treating you better. I, I had a fight with a guy at work, like an ongoing conflict, and and I prayed about it, and I realized that I had to I had to serve him as a part of being a follower of Jesus because he was my enemy, and so I started doing things to serve him, and all of a sudden we were friends because. That's how you make peace with people, right? Like, if you fight back, they'll always be enemies to you. Um, and so Peter kind of jumps off and he says, listen, now, no one's going to harm you if you're zealous for doing good because nobody attacks Mother Teresa, right? Nobody attacks Mr. Rogers. Nobody attacks the good guys. Nobody is Superman's enemy. If you're Superman's enemy, you're the bad guy. So if you are zealous, if you're energetic, if you desire to do the right thing, and to follow Christ according to his teachings and, like, really be out there and be Jesus' man, people will not naturally be your enemy. And if they are, you've got a heavy. You've got God on your side. I mean, he's better than that 6'3", whatever he was. I think he was, like, 6'3", actually. Anyway, I don't know what I said earlier. It's better than having a big, strong guy standing behind you because he's God. Um, that having been said, he says, who's going to be your enemy if you're zealous for doing good? But... Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Um, we're going to divide 14 into two halves here because there's a sentence break there, and I wanted to treat them separately. The problem is that sometimes people will be your enemy no matter what you do. There are people who will dislike you. There are people who will be your enemy, people who will oppose you, people who will persecute you, no matter what. There is nothing you can do to avoid it. Because even though God is for us and who can be against us, right? Even though we do right and right protects us, sometimes people will oppose you because they oppose, because they oppose Christ. And part of this is we have an enemy in this world, right? We have an enemy, and the enemy is Satan, right? And Satan will look for ways to trip us up that is spiritual, that is sometimes in our own temptations, and sometimes that's just putting people in our way who are a headache, and I'm not saying the devil's under every rock. Don't hear me saying that. But, like, there will be per- opposition. There will be persecution. I, especially we see it more and more in our culture, right, where people are opposed to some of the basic tenets of the Christian faith. And, and folks have a problem with that. And so Peter says, listen, if you're going to suffer, suffer for righteousness' sake. Because this is a part of being his follower. People will persecute you. People will oppose you. And he goes on. He says, this is... 14b through 16, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ as holy, 
always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. There's a lot going on here. Right out of the gate, have no fear of them nor be troubled, is a partial quote. And it might seem, like when we read this, I'm going to share this with you, and it might seem like, wait a minute, is that really quoting that, or do they just happen to have the same words? As it turns out, this is from Isaiah chapter 8, Peter quotes Isaiah 8 like five times in his book. And he doesn't ever attribute it. It's always just kind of like he pulls a part out of here and he pulls a part out of there. And so Isaiah 8 is sort of worked throughout. Um, This is verses 11 to 14, I'll read you. Um, For the Lord thus spoke to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk away, uh, walk in the way of this people saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts... Him you shall honor as holy. Now, do you see this here? He says, don't fear what they fear. Actually, some translations literally say, don't fear what they fear. Um, This is the uh, ESV, and they render it, uh, don't fear them. Um, and it's just a, it's a minor variation in translation. It has to do with some of the way the manuscripts like land, and we're not going to get into that today. If you really want to hear about it, ask me later. Um, and don't be troubled, but have your hearts on, honor Christ as Lord, as holy. Um, and he says, in, again, the Isaiah passage is, hey, take God seriously. Honor him as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. Now, that little partial, uh, that little sentence there, fear God and dread God because you need to take him seriously. That's sort of the key to understanding a lot of this. Um, and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, which Peter quotes earlier in the book. Um, now, coming back to our text, um, have no fear of them, again, quoting here, um, but in your hearts honor Christ as, as the Lord, or Christ the Lord is holy. Um, what we're doing there is heart, right? He doesn't mean a little blood pump in your chest, right? We're all clear on that? Um, heart, in the ancient understanding, as Peter tends to use it, refers to the source and center of our outward action. It's not our soul. It's not our identity. It is the thing that bursts forward and dictates how we act. And so if Christ is our Lord, then Christ becomes sort of the center of our decision making. I've spent my week working on goals. I said, well, I'm going to figure out my goals and finding five-year goals and six-month goals and everything else. And and working at that, I realized that I'm much better at setting priorities than goals because I don't know where I'm going to be in five years. I don't know what my life's going to look like. I don't know what's going to happen. That is not to infer that I'm moving away or anything like that. Don't hear me saying that. Um, But it's just hard to plan for that sort of thing. Um, But I can set priorities. And my number one priority is follow Jesus. Do what Jesus wants me to do. And so when I deal with another person, um, when somebody curses me or when somebody crosses me or somebody mistreats me, my flesh, right, like the sinful part of me says, all right, let's go, right? It's, it's time to respond with, with fire. Um, but the part of me that is devoted to following Christ, which should be at the center of my heart, will back up and say, what does the boss say to do? What, what, is, what does my master say I should be doing right now? I, I've had a, about 30 jobs in my lifetime. I, I've worked in a retail establishments. I've worked in bakeries. I've worked in, in 
I was an exterminator for a little while. I had, and one of the common themes in all of those jobs is somebody was buying my time. They paid me. I showed up from this hour to this hour. And during that time, I was not mine. I was theirs. And so if they said, Eric, go dig a trench, I dug a trench because that's part of me working for them. If I said, I don't feel like digging a trench. I think I'm going to go take a nap in the truck. I would lose my job and I wouldn't be doing my job properly because I wouldn't be taking them seriously. All of my actions at work are dictated by the boss. In this case, Christ is my Lord. He is my master. And Christ says, when people revile you, bless them. When people mistreat you, love them and pray for them. And so when Peter says, have no fear of them nor be troubled, but set Christ um, as Lord, as holy in your hearts, he's saying, when folks mistreat you, forget like the, the retaliation. Don't be afraid of them. Take it as this thing that God is putting you through, that God has put you in the position to deal with. Always be... Per- oh, hold on. Before we jump into that next little bit there. The, the, there's a great line in Matthew, and I'm going to have to do it from memory because I didn't mark it in my Bible. Uh, there's a great line from Matthew where Christ is teaching. is Matthew 10. And, and Christ says... Don't be afraid of people who persecute you. Be afraid of God. Because the people who persecute you can kill you, but God can put you in hell. Right? I mean, I, like that's not a small thing. Like, honor God because God has control over your ultimate destiny. Honor God because God has, has direction and decision-making power um, in the long run. And so going forward from that, the second half of this, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Now, be prepared to make a defense. The word there is apologia, which is the root for apologetics. And apologetics is a defense of the faith. So, like, always be prepared to explain why you believe what you believe, why you are doing what you're doing. But now he gives a, give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Now, there's something interesting here. He doesn't say, give a defense of your faith. He says, give a defense for the hope that is in you. Now, hope and faith are both used in Peter's books. Peter uses hope differently than faith. Hope is looking forward to eternity. Faith is in the now. You all with me? So if I'm giving an answer for the hope I have, the response is, hey, I'm being persecuted and I'm responding the way I am because right now this isn't everything. This is not my home. This isn't where I live. This isn't my permanent state. I am on my way to heaven. What I experience here is the blink of an eye. What I experience there is forever. Don't fear what they fear. Take God seriously and fear him. Why do we fear God? Because... uh, Because God has control over our forever. And so when we're prepared to give a defense for our hope, the answer is, well, why don't I care about my situation now? Why am I not as worried about my wealth or about my social status or about my position or about my respect or about my this or that? Why am I not worried about these things? Why am I willing to be persecuted for this? It's because I know I have to stand before God. I know that's the truth of who I am. And a lot of times we lose sight of that, that we need to be able to back up and say, you know what, I believe Christ is my destiny. 
I believe Christ is the end game. I believe that Christ is where I'm going to end up. I will stand before him, and that is what matters. And I need to be afraid of of him, not you. In fact, Peter does this when he's first arrested and brought before the Sanhedrin after the resurrection. And they say, all right, you guys stop preaching publicly. And Peter says, are we to obey men rather than God? Of course not. Like, we're going to obey God because all a man can do is kill you. All a man can do is take stuff from you. And in our day and age, for the most part, all a man can do is trash talk you. All a man can do is, is maybe you know, cheat you in business or, or something like that. It's not very often that we face death in this culture in, in our day and age. I mean, maybe in the future, who knows? But in the immediate, we're not worried about the now. We're worried about what's coming. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Now, gentleness and respect, it sounds like they're joined and pointing in the same direction, but they're not. Gentleness is how we treat the people around us, treat them gently, I know folks who will argue for the faith, but they do it in such a way that you would rather roll around in broken glass than believe what they believe because they're horrible. Perhaps some of y'all have met folks like that. So we are gentle and we're loving toward people around us. Even if they're mistreating us, we treat them gently and lovingly. Respect is generally like fear respect, and our respect is toward God. So when I talk to someone, I understand I'm gentle with them, and I realize I am their representative. I had a little while I had to make phone calls for money. Do you guys love those people? (laughs) And there were times when I would be talking to folks on the phone, and I would really, really want to share with them what I felt at the moment. But I have a respecter I have to deal with, right? Like the people who are paying me, my boss. And so I have to respect what they want. I have to fear them because... Because I, I want to keep my job. Um, we are to respond to people with respect, with awareness that God is taking care of us, that, so that we having a good conscience, so that when we are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Now, that's why I say respect is pointed toward God, because that respect gives us a good conscience, Right? If I do the right thing, if I speak the right way, I have a good conscience. I'm clean before God. I know I'm okay because I did the right thing. Now, so that when you are slandered, those who revile you and your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. That's an eternity thing. That is saying these folks who are attacking you, when you are loving toward them, when you are respectful of God as you deal with them, um, they they hate you for your behavior in Christ, um, in the long run, those people are going to be put to shame. They're going to stand before God and they're going to answer for it. And we don't want them to be there. We want them to repent. We want folks to be right before God because God is glorified by repentant sinners. Um, And so we lovingly engage with folks even when they mistreat us, even when they mock us, even when they hate us or slander us or whatever. We respond to them realizing I am Christ's representative. I am a representative of my Lord. Um, For it is better to suffer for doing good if that, is, if that should be God's will, then for doing evil. Now, here's a hard idea, guys. Contained in this is the notion that sometimes your life is going to be hard because God wills it. I mean, that's basically what it says, right? Ooh. Uh, we're going to jump back to Psalm 16, or Proverbs 16. That was uh, 
Man's ways please the Lord and forces enemies to make peace with him. And I think Peter did this on purpose. I think these are connected. Because Psalm 16.4, this is three verses before the one I read earlier. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even wicked for the day of trouble. Meaning wicked people exist and God allows them to exist because sometimes we're going to have a hard day. And sometimes like God is aware that's the case and he's already orchestrated all of this. And, like, this is what's going to be in our path. Now, from a certain point of view, hardship is miserable and awful and we should hate it. But from a very different point of view, persecution and hardship and difficulty puts us in a spot where we glorify God by being his representatives in those moments. Where he refines us and makes us better by experiencing hard days. Where he changes us through this. And God has prepared these things. They happen because they happen. Um, and really it's the same thing that happened to Christ. And he goes on in verse 18, he says, for Christ also suffered once for sins. Now, meaning like Christ encountered evil people. Christ endured wicked behavior. Christ was mistreated by evil. And he suffered, I think Peter uses suffered instead of died here, because he's trying to draw us into this idea that we're doing the same thing he did. When somebody hates you because you believe in Christ, when somebody mistreats you because you're following Christ and you're speaking the truth in love, and when somebody reviles you for being a believer um, and for standing for right or for speaking the word to folks, like when people are in that spot and they hate you, you suffer just as Christ suffered. And he suffered once for our sins, meaning... You and I, we are righteous because of Christ. Christ suffered and died, was crucified, punished, bore the weight and punishment of our sins on himself so that we could be forgiven, so we could be made right before God, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. Um, Christ was put to death in the flesh. He was killed. He was put in the ground to bring us to God. And so today, by the way, a lot of this leans on a very Old Testament Jewish understanding where we've talked about being righteous before God. You're only righteous before God because of Christ, right? You can be as good as you possibly can be without Jesus and be wicked. Like what makes us acceptable to God is Christ's suffering and death on our behalf. We are bought with that blood that he poured out on Calvary and we are brought to him. And him having been put to death brought back um, in which, now here's where, there are a couple of really nasty hard verses, and I I sort of second-guessed preaching 1 Peter when I got to these sections. I'm like, oh, I don't really want to do this. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. So this is a tricky verse. There are three potential meanings of this little tidbit here, right? Either he went and preached the gospel to people who had died before he showed up, and, like, redeem them from hell, like, having, I mean, like, that's one perspective. Uh, the other perspective is that he may have gone back and been in Noah, like the spirit in Noah preaching, which is, I don't know, it's kind of tricky. Or this is the one I'm going to offer you. This is the one I'm buying, okay? Um, when... When God created the world, he had angels that he created, and there was a large crowd of these angels, a third of them, that fell, that rebelled against him. And they are imprisoned. And the ones that are preached to in this verse, having proclaimed, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, um, because they formerly did not obey, 
The argument here is that he went and announced to these fallen angels his vindication, right? His, his having died and carried our sins to, to cleanse us and, like, taken us to heaven with him in the long run. Like, the idea here is that he went and he – it's a little like talking trash after you win, right? Except it's not trash. That's the wrong way to phrase that. Maybe it was a bad choosing. Um, he went and announced to these fallen angels, God wins. Like, God is ultimately victorious. You can rebel, you can fight, but you will not win against us. And here I am, having died, resurrecting ultimately, like, defeated sin, um, crushed the head of Satan, uh, overcome death, and in this, God is glorified. Now, this is where it gets a little harder. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Oh my gosh, what does this have to do with anything? (laughs) Peter's drawing a parallel between Noah and his family and believers. He's saying this small group of folks were persecuted, were righteous during a time when everybody around them was evil, We're following God even in the most difficult of circumstances. These people are like the believers he's addressing. Look, you're being mistreated. People hate you. People are, you know, reviling you. People are persecuting you. But you're just like Noah and his family. They were in the same spot. And what God did was he put them in the ark and he brought them through the whole thing safely. Through water, mind you, which Peter takes an opportunity to say, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Here's another hard one. (laughs) You don't get saved by being baptized. Everybody with me? Being baptized does not wash your sins away, which is what he says. Um, Not as the removal of dirt from the body. The word body there is sarks. It means flesh. So not as in removing dirt from the flesh, not as in cleansing your flesh, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Um, The NIV translates this as as an appeal to God for a pledge of a good conscience. Um, the idea here is we are baptized, which is like what Moses and these guys went through. They, were, they went through the water and they came out alive on the other side, everyone else having been wiped out. And like that, we go through our baptism. We are um, buried in the water. Water is often associated with death, like it's a symbol for death. So like Paul says this as well. We die and are buried in our baptism, and we are resurrected brand new on the other side. That's why baptism is so important, because it's a symbol of this death and this resurrection. And it is a pledge for a good conscience, meaning it's a representation of a promise that God has made to us. By the way, there's another thing we do here, right? There's another thing that we do here that is a pledge for a good conscience. When we remember that Jesus Christ died for us, that his flesh was broken, that he poured out his blood, we remember, like, like we have this pledge of a good conscience, and that's what we celebrate at communion. We are free, we are forgiven, we are made new, we are purified. That's why we do communion. There's a remembrance that Jesus Christ died for us. Um, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone to heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. By the way, um, the strongest argument in favor of my angels, fallen angels here, um, 
is right there at the end there. He says that Jesus Christ is at the right hand, having gone to heaven at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him, is a sideways reference to Psalm 110, which starts out with, the, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make, an en- make your enemies your footstool. And so, like, Peter is quoting you, he's saying, like, Christ is at God's right hand. My Lord is at the Lord's right hand, and his enemies are his footstools, the angels, the authorities, and the powers. They've all been subjected to him. And so, like, what do we do with this? First off, we recognize that suffering in life is not bad. That is the craziest thing you can say in this culture that says, be comfortable and happy and you're good, right? You know, if it feels good, it can't be that bad, I think. Or if it makes you happy, it can't be that bad, right? Like that that philosophy. Everything that's fun is good. In reality, the things that are hard are good. The things that we go through that force us to lean on Christ and force us to grow to become more like Christ are good. Um, and the other thing that we remember in this, as we suffer, as we experience difficulty, as we, as we get sick and fall apart, as we're opposed by people, as we follow Christ, even when it's hard, we're, we're made new, like we're offered this promise. Um, I'm going to call my guys forward, and we're going to be doing communion today. And this is like this representation, this reminder that we have that in Christ, um, our suffering is not the end. We might be broken. We might be crushed. Um, we might be torn to pieces. Um, we might be rendered homeless or slandered or mistreated. But in Christ, that suffering has purpose. In Christ, that suffering points to something better. Um, and so on the night that Christ was betrayed, he took his bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. He said, this is my body broken for you. Um, Do this in remembrance of me. And as we take communion today, we take this as a reminder that we have a good conscience, that Christ died for you, that 